Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He's the man who has read well over half a million brain scans. And Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Mark your calendars for Friday, April 26, 2024, as Bradley University hosts the 8th Annual Super Brain Summit, presented by the Center for Collaborative Brain Research. This year's topic, Rhythms of Regulation, Polyvagal Perspectives, promises an insightful exploration through polyvagal theory with Deb Dana, LCSW, leading the discussions as the featured speaker. Dana is a celebrated author and clinician, brings her extensive knowledge and practical experience to the forefront. Front. The event will be held at the Hayden Clark Alumni Center's Peplo Pavilion, available both live and online, ensuring accessible participation for all interested. For those looking to register or seeking more information, please contact Gwen at ghowarter at bradley.edu or by phone at 309-677-3900. Further inquiries about the program can be directed to Dr. Lori Russell Chapin at lar at bradley.edu. Don't miss this enriching opportunity to engage with the latest advancements in brain research and polyvagal practices. Jay Gunkelman, it's you and I, my friend. <laughs> the danger starts now. Huh? That's right. <laughs> so so Mar- Marie's not going to be here, so I'm going to talk like this and ask really smart <laughs> questions. And you can get one of those, uh, you know, the images that will put a wig on your head. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we can fake this one, you know. That's right. Well, we can get away with a lot of stuff. We don't have anybody licensed on the show, so we can say what we want. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jay, what's on your mind, my friend? Oh, you know, uh, I, I'm... Uh, thinking about the stress that kids are under nowadays and, yeah. you know, the ACEs, the uh, adverse childhood experiences and, uh, and how that uh, ends up predicting later life health consequences, not good ones. And, uh, and, and then I, I look at the news. I mean, the trauma and we have all sorts of trauma, you know, therapists and developmental trauma therapists in the U.S. and stuff for, from just normal societal uh, traumas. But uh, war zones and uh, um, the, the uh, you know, the, the evening news is enough to put a scare into you, you know. Um, and, you know, I... I've lived long enough so I can have some perspective about this, but imagine being a teen growing up and having, you know, uh, chaos uh, uh, online and on the news. And, you know, there the, there's a tendency to follow the negative um, and, you know, blow up uh, sensational stories and things like that. So it, it's a skewed view but there's no perspective uh, for somebody coming up. Um, you know, the, <laughs> I'm 75 this year, for goodness sakes. If that doesn't give you a little bit of perspective, you know, you haven't been paying attention. 
and um, you know, I, I've gone through you know Vietnam War protests and uh, 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 chaotic uh, times previously. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm on the front page of the local newspaper above the line on our lab in 1974, uh, and below that is Nixon stuff as as he's being toppled slowly. So, uh, um, you know, I, I've gone through governmental uh, uh, throws as well. So, uh, you know, some perspective allows you to not be quite as freaked out about it. But, you know, the if you look at the uh, incidence of anxiety and uh, uh, the affective dysregulation that's being reported and uh, they uh, I don't know how effective but there's all sorts of attempts to try to address that now as well um, uh, online and you know that might be something that younger f- folks are adept at uh, what, I, what is I, the ASA test you, you brought it up some people oh, may oh, not uh, know sure. and when did it come up come about Sure. Uh, no, you're, you're quite a few years ago now. Uh, there, there was a doctor who uh, 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 tracked uh, uh, young developmental history uh, features and uh, had a few thousand patients and saw the predictive value of these negative experiences. Um, you know and. And it's basically there's ten core questions that you can answer in a flash, um, and, and uh, they've done this in meetings where, you know, th- they present this concept to an entire group of uh, social workers and psychologists and, and such, and the people actually take the exam. And if you have more than four answers yes to this, uh, it it ends up predicting hypertension, cardiac problems, uh, stroke, you know, bad medical negative outcomes that are usually considered somewhat stress related. And, um, you know, they, uh, they, they do show that an early intervention can counterbalance that somewhat. Uh, but uh, the, the audience ends up answering these questions and you know, 40, 50% of the audience ends up qualifying for long-term health consequence based on early experience. And, you know, you might say, well, sociologists and uh, psychologists are kind of steered towards that field because of their early life trauma or something, but you can get similar results of any large group uh, out there. And for some groups, you know, much more severe. So, um, uh, um, now the doctor had a few thousand patients and he shared his results, uh, and the epidemiologist basically said, nah, you know, you can't convince anybody with a few thousand. We have to fa- have a few million. And they actually rolled this out with a multi-center study and gathered that data. So this is hard science. And uh, the you know the the aces scores are predictive and 
um, it's becoming more and more common for uh, uh, pediatricians, for instance, to end up trying to assess uh, uh, the, the level of exposure uh, for their clients. And, you know, it's, it's important. You, you can intervene early um, and have a fairly effective intervention uh, and uh, change the trajectory of somebody's, you know, life outcome. Uh, it, um, it, as an example, you know, you, you've got somebody who's got a high level of anxiety and uh, they're panicky and they have phobia, um, over arousal, negative uh, problems. Well, a, a phobia, the first step in a phobia treatment is to drop the arousal level. If you don't drop the arousal level, you can't start to expose them to some hierarchy of things that are closer to the thing that they're afraid of, like a spider. You know, anything hanging from the rearview mirror is going to be seen as a spider. It could be dice, you know. But uh, if they have the phobia, they have to drop their arousal level, and only then. So it, it, you can intervene with people that have high levels of arousal that have been triggered from earlier life circumstances. And there are techniques to train people to control their internal states. They're, you know, historically, you, you'd have the traditional medical view. Your nervous system has two parts. The voluntary part, I can move my finger voluntarily, and then the involuntary part. Oh, your heartbeat, your blood pressure, uh, uh, pupil diameter, electrodermal activity, you know, all, all sorts of brainwave things. You know, these are all out of your control. They're in the autonomic self-naming or, or um, nervous system, uh, the involuntary nervous system. But, you know, uh, back in the 60s uh, at Yale, uh, we, we, we basically ended up having... Uh, uh, the wisdom uh, imparted uh, to try to look at the involuntary nervous system features and apply operant training to them. And at, at that point, their work was challenged. And, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of uh, traditional uh, thought and you're claiming voluntary control through operant training uh, of the autonomic nervous system, which they could see could be classically conditioned, you know, Pavlov's drippy saliva dog, you know. Um, yeah, you can train a, a dog to salivate to a bell instead of to a steak. Um, but uh, that, that was classical conditioning and not volitional. And... Uh, uh, they, they pushed against that real hard. And, and when uh, Neil Miller uh, at Yale uh, showed that you could control blood pressure, they absolutely went wild. And they, they claimed, oh, it's, it's all mediated by muscle. And, uh, you, you know, it, it, it flies in the face of everything everybody knew uh, to be able to volitionally control something like blood pressure. Now, a student in his lab, Leo Dakara, actually took Karari, paralyzed himself, 
and then demonstrated voluntary control over his blood pressure. Now, try to get that through an IRB nowadays, you know, uh, there, there would be no way uh, that they would allow you to voluntarily paralyze yourself uh, to, to prove that you're not muscle mediating uh, the blood pressure control. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, goodness, uh, students are our future, but they're also our past. Uh, the, the students are uh, those that built the field that we're, we're in. And uh, Neil Miller really realized that and set up a foundation to foster the students uh, uh, associated with AAPB, now FERB, F-E-R-B, Foundation for uh, um, Education and Research in, in uh, biofeedback and neurofeedback. So, Jay, the, Jay, the question I have on that, Asa, how, I don't know when it happened. I don't need an exact date, but my point is what you just told me is you need, they needed more data to put it through. Somebody must have been behind it, the government or something to fund it to go to millions of people. Do you know how that went down? Because everybody you know, says neurofeedback needs more data. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know exactly how that went down. I, I do know that that uh, uh, he he the, the doctor who had collected the data who, you know, this was a practitioner, uh, not not an academic uh, researcher. And when he went to the researcher, he was told that the scale, you know, thousand, he thought thousands, you know, well, look at most studies that are published. Thousands of people usually are adequate, you know? So he thought he had some pretty good stuff and he did, uh, but not enough to convince the skeptics, which they, they needed to to ramp it up. And, uh, you know, the, I'm not sure how they ended up with the multi-center study, but that sort of thing, is not you know a, a questionnaire uh, handed out is is not that hard to replicate out with a multi-center study and and ramp up um is scaling that kind of a thing up is different than uh treatment uh, which ends up being much more difficult um but the 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 aces uh, basically ends up uh, predicting n negative outcomes, but some of those negative outcomes are now the teenagers that are panicky and uh, are in need of uh, assistance, and twenty-year-olds uh, and thirty-year-olds, and and uh, you know, it's, it, across all age groups, you've you've got uh, negative impacts from isolation during COVID. Um, uh, the the incidence of uh, anxiety um, and isolation and dis, you know, dissociation, uh, feeling separate from uh, as as a, a, a general sense, um, all that just ramped way up, and uh, it, it's it's good to see. Um, uh, I, I, you know, Giancarlo Licata, uh, um, his clinical practice, he posts anecdotes on occasion, uh, sometimes with EEG samples that are unique and, and predictive and, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, people talking about uh, their experience with the therapy and um, a, a teenage girl with anxiety and panic and, and uh, uh, you know, it, it, uh, her, her life bloomed back to being a happy young girl with the intervention basically with neurofeedback as well as as cognitive behavioral and in other interventions they they put together quite a nice package and um it, it's good to see that you know 
I, my work with a handful of intractable epileptics, but there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of practitioners out there that are turning out routinely um, improved cognitive and improved emotional outcomes uh, with neurofeedback. And it, it's a shame that um, that uh, that kind of grassroots positive impact on uh, uh, people without um, uh, s such a wild, impossible to control thing like intractable epilepsy. You know, my focus on that was in part to uh, show the power of the technique. I mean, if you can stop intractable epilepsy that they can't stop and they're telling somebody they need brain surgery, you know, control of an emotion is a piece of cake by comparison. So, uh, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's really um, heartening to see the positive outcomes that are rolling out. And uh, again, I'm starting to see them uh, detailed online on some of the uh, uh, social media. And it, it, it's really nice to see. Do you think schools could help things out by changing the hours of operation? Because it seems to me that, the I'm guessing, okay, the video editor of the show, I'm guessing that kids aren't getting enough sleep and the school is starting too early and it needs to change the hours. It seems the hours are there to accommodate the teachers. And yeah, and there's also, there's also a question about homework and and the uh, the, the actual value of or added value of uh, of routine homework, and um, uh, that uh, I I think schools need to totally restructure. Um, uh, you know the, uh, but you know the school boards are all in local control, so it, uh, you can uh, think think of something that would benefit schools in general, but it has to be implemented in a school in order to get it started. And um, yeah. Then you need it, more it, data for more schools. Yeah. It, um, but, you know, you can, you can end up benefiting kids with game-like interventions without any diagnostic uh, tomfoolery. Uh, um, you know, we, we do testing, a go-no-go -go test to test for attention. And that, that's essentially a whack-a-mole Something pops up, you got to hit it. Pops up over here, you don't. You know, so uh, um, you, you you can get a go no go uh, response, uh, um, behaviorally measured, uh, a reaction time, uh, all of that kind of thing with a game, and without diagnosing. If the person gets a really bad score, they can go over and play that brain game over there and uh, see if they can make the little fighter jets fly well, and then they can come back and play the whack-a-mole game again and see if they can improve. And all of these game things can be set up in very young, it, it, it's, it, you know, very, very young pre-DSM uh, diagnosis and uh, actually avoid the problem entirely. Uh, um, and it, it's it's all gamified, so you're not really diagnosing. The, the the schools have difficulty if you diagnose somebody, then they have to end up uh, providing special services and uh, that sort of thing. So they can be very resistant to the um, introduction of a 
program that ends up having a diagnostic uh, features. Um, I know that's changing. Um, there are some that end up having having to diagnose in order to get funds for specific projects. And um, uh, one of the uh, uh, a young women attending at the Sassoon Summit uh, this year had such a program. So um, yeah, the, uh, a diagnosis isn't a problem for everybody, but I've seen that uh, raise its head as an opposition in schools, so. With the uh, internet, in YouTube, knowledge, education is no longer centralized, it's decentralized. If you want to learn something, you can go out there and learn it. The two values that I, my opinion, that I think schools have right now, it's daycare for parents and <laughs> socialization, okay? Yeah, and um, I think the socialization is important um, and, and can't be underestimated. Um, I, but yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying, if the Jay Gulkelman Neuro Noodle School, if you would had a, a, an education component, a socialization component, right, you could split those things out. Because socialization, when, when a kid gets older, a teenager or past 18, I think they're, they're better going, uh, it's going to get some people upset, but volunteer, uh, military, do something, Peace Corps, whatever it is, two years, serve, there's your, or get a job, you know, job is great socialization skills, right? Yeah. And if you want to get, and, get your And I, I don't think you can underestimate the value of international exposure. Uh, you, you don't really have an appreciation for the society you're in until you see other societies and um, you, you get a, a, a a sense of what's universal and and what's unique and uh, special and different and um and it, um and, and there's some great food out there too so uh <laughs> international travel is uh, really quite uh, uh, uh quite wonderful i was lucky enough to uh, do international travel to do lectures uh, when i was still well enough to do that and um it it, it I, I i totally <laughs> it has a lot of it adds a lot of spice to life. I say that I'll say that. <laughs> I do see the value to that. I just think that uh, that has value. There's certain things that, and I don't want to get too political on things, but anytime uh, it's like a, a government office, anytime a school gets more money, they figure out how to way to add to administration and the, the, yeah. the courses that are being offered People are disappointed when they get done getting the degree in whatever it is, and the money they make doesn't support the lifestyle that they want. I think well, it needs to be rejigged. Again, the school district has to end up having proper programs. Uh, the little tiny town I lived in uh, had a high school, and uh, uh, we ended up getting them grants to set up a career academy, which was not... Uh, college oriented uh, it was oriented towards trades um, but they it wasn't and, and you know they had traditional trades electrical you know welding construction kind of stuff but they also had CAD cam
Mark your calendars for Friday, April 26, 2024, as Bradley University hosts the 8th Annual Super Brain Summit, presented by the Center for Collaborative Brain Research. This year's topic, Rhythms of Regulation, Polyvagal Perspectives, promises an insightful exploration through polyvagal theory with Deb Dana, LCSW, leading the discussions as a featured speaker. Dana is a celebrated author and clinician, brings her extensive knowledge and practical experience to the forefront. The event will be held at the Hayden Clark Alumni Center's Peplo Pavilion, available both live and online, ensuring accessible participation for all interested. For those looking to register or seeking more information, please contact Gwen at G-H-O-W-A-R-T-E-R at Bradley.edu or by phone at 309-677-3900. Further inquiries about the program can be directed to Dr. Lori Russell Chapin, at lar at bradley.edu. Don't miss this enriching opportunity to engage with the latest advancements in brain research and polyvagal practices. Uh, Computer-assisted design and and manufacturing. And, uh, you know, if you go into CAD CAM, you're going to end up having to do some math. So uh, it isn't like this is like the people who don't have enough brains to do something. This is just people who are oriented towards a different end goal. And CAD CAM is high level, but so is, uh, uh, so is high level construction. And um, uh, they, they turn out at the end of the high school, people that are going directly into uh, uh, apprenticeships um, that they're being snatched up, uh, and and placed directly into industry and you know uh, well directly into industry uh, it, you you can end up having a job skill and that after maybe four or five six years of of apprenticeship and your journeyman and and some good experience you can end up having your own uh, firm and uh, you can be an employer of people that are doing electrical wiring and uh, or plumbing or construction. And at that point, your, yeah, your, your income level is probably beating most of the people that got their psych degree and are now tending bar, you know? So, I, I mean, um, ment- this is a mental health podcast. I don't want to stray too far, but when you don't have money and you, you're, you have champagne tastes <laughs> and you have a beer budget, that's stress especially if you're, you're married, right? And that deals with mental health. And I think, I don't want to say it gets down to goal setting to figure out early on in life what's important, what you value, that needs to be carried out. And I guess that's the parent's job. But if you don't have both parents or any parents, and then you go through the school system, that isn't set up as well yeah. as it could be, right? Yeah, we were lucky that we had a school system that was a- able to be uh, structured and um, uh, yeah, it, it, it was actually a, 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 a one one of the most racially mixed schools in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I had relatives that were telling me that I had to pull my kid out into private school, and I said, "Well, why?" And they said, "Well, yeah, that look at the mix of people in the school." I said, "That's a fabulous thing." Yeah, it's exposure and and uh, there's no racism in a foxhole or it's fourth and one. And uh, and you you basically end up with a, 
a, a, a full exposure to uh, uh, everybody, and um, and it's it's not uh, uh, it, it's not um, something that had a a poor outcome. Uh, the school district actually has percentage of high, of high end uh, graduates. Uh, uh, it's really uh, quite good, um, and, and they had uh, uh, instructors that were PhD instructors. So it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't uh, 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 difficult to have a, a good education there, uh, uh, e either college bound or again uh, the the. Uh, um, the career academy and you know the four hundred thousand dollar cad cam system uh, grant uh, was a big leg up for that aspect of it but the trades came in and outfitted it for the uh, wiring and um, yeah all, all of the rest of uh, uh, the construction trades so jay where did where did this stigmatism come from uh trades it's Oh, you're going into a trade. You're looked down upon. Is that the branding of I, colleges trying to, you know? I I, I don't have that. Um, no, I know that, but it's uh, it, it has happened somewhere in the past where I'm I'm a tech, <laughs> you know. I'm so, a video uh, editor. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, uh, um, people are people, and there are going to be people that end up looking down their nose at others, but that's their problem. Not. Um, you, you don't have to take that on. Uh, uh, well, no, we need more EEG techs out there <laughs> and standardized learning. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I, I heard on the show we had uh, Tony Anthony Ramos on, and he's, you know, a Florida guy, and he works with a neurologist. And he was asking on our last show, I'll put the link right here where everybody can check it out. Basically, why more neurologists aren't pushing more EEGs because the, the learnings aren't standardized. Not everybody's learning how to read EEG the same way. Have you heard that too, Jay? Or? Well, uh, the inter-rater reliability for a diagnosis in EEG medically is very low. Um, uh, it, it's not like the, the clearly normal, nothing wrong, or the, the clearly abnormal, but there's lots and lots of patterns in between. And depending upon your uh, depth of education, uh, you may or may not recognize the little oddities that are clearly not normal or abnormal, but somewhere in between. Um, uh, if you're a neurologist, you have on the average six months of specialization in EEG. Now, I can think back to six months of intense only EEG focus for six months, and I could spot three per second spike in wave. I could tell you a flat line looks flat, you know, and um, I, I spot uh, all sorts of classic patterns, but the subtleties uh, aren't, aren't there until you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of exposures. Some guy wrote some book about 10,000, you have to do something 10,000 times for EG. It's, I think it's hundreds of thousands of times before you really, really get um, well tuned to spot something in the raw, just flipping quick through it. Um, and it, you know, um, 
the electroencephalographer or epileptologist has a year and a half or more of specialized training. And they've got, you know, let, let's say you, you've got your neurology credential and, and you, you went on to specialize in EEG and you've got your EEG credential. You know, you, you're an electroencephalographer. You've got that paper up on the wall. But there's still another credential, uh, pediatric EEG. Oh, well, you got another credential. And there's even another one, neonatal EEG, which, which is really specialized. Um, and, and that's a, a rare one, but it, it's one that's critically important because to not really understand what you're looking at can give you a big mistake. Uh, uh, in premature infants, there's a pattern of a big burst that, and then flat and then a burst, and then flat. It's a normal pattern in premature infants. It's called tracé alternant, uh, an alternating trace. It's a French-identified uh, pattern. And it looks like burst suppression, which is, happens at death. Uh, so uh, you, you don't want to be telling parents that, oh, I'm sorry, your baby's dying uh, uh, by misinterpreting the burst suppression. Uh, it's it's tracé alternant. And, so that 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 depth of experience comes not from six months of training um, and um, nothing against neurologists with only six months of training. A lot of them are not interested in EEG. They may be the doctor in the hospital that has to read the EEGs, um, but they may be interested in peripheral neuropathies, you know, diabetic neuropathies, um, you know, people with numb tingly feet and you know that that's their area that they really want to specialize in something totally different um uh, uh, some you know spinal uh, problems with uh people stroke rehab i mean the neurologist could have a lot of other interests not just eeg and uh, uh, and uh, again uh, the variability between interpreters at that point is quite large they say 30% uh, agreement. Uh, that that's more disagreement than agreement. It's um, uh, not a good test score. Jay, we're, well, we're talking about we're talking about chemical energy, right? So you want to check the chemical energy of the heart. You do an EKG, and you you, you get a physical, and you do that. Is that because it's simpler? I look at it like uh, you have one outlet in in the heart, but at the brain. You know, there's 19 different outlets and variations of waves. Well, the, heart, the heart's more complex than one. I mean, you have a seven uh, lead uh, vector cardiogram uh, uh, to end up analyzing things really properly. But you can get a pretty good one off of a single lead, um, two, two electrodes uh, um, and, and a simple EKG. Like the little cardio mobile where you put your thumbs on both sides of the little credit card and you see your EKG, yeah, uh, or, watch, or, yeah. or 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 Apple watches EKG and that sort of thing, but uh, um, and and uh, that, that's basically uh, you you end up having the watch on one arm so the back of the watch is in contact with this arm and then you touch the the little cap button with the other. So now it's got a circuit between your arms and it picks up the EKG and extracts it from all the noise that they pick up from that signal as well. So it, you know, it can be done. Um, but, but why is that recognized? Cause you made the example. It's like, well, if you have heartburn, 
you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's the example, Jay? Well, you know, the uh, essentially in medicine, the symptom tells you to do some testing and then the testing tells you how to treat. So a cardiologist, if they operated like a psychologist, somebody would come in with their complaint. Doc, I have indigest this. I, I've got this pain. Uh, I've got chest pain. And if they did angioplasty and all of them, half of them would have had indigestion, not a cardiac problem. So the symptom guides to testing. In psychology, the symptom, doc, I'm anxious, doc, I'm obsessed, doc, I'm depressed, uh, doc, I'm seeing things, doc, I'm hearing things, um, you know, uh, the, something wrong inside, uh, whatever the story is, it should lead to testing, not to treatment. The psychiatrist says, hmm, that's an interesting story, try this, but there's no testing. You know, and if you look before you dive in, my grandmother was right. Don't dive in unless you know what's under the surface. And it wasn't all about swimming. I mean, that was what she was talking about. But it's across life. It's best to actually look at the brain before you you try to treat it. You know, um, in psychiatry right now, for instance, you can purchase a $250,000 TMS machine with a gigantic 1.5 to 3 Tesla magnet that they can point at a head and activate or inactivate an area on the brain. And you get your insurance company to pay for it because you're depressed and you've failed a couple of treatments. They don't look at your brain activity. Your complaint was depression and you failed a few treatments. So they pointed at the left frontal area, assuming it's left frontal. They don't look. And it beats placebo, but if you actually look what you're pointing it at, you avoid the flipping somebody into a manic state because they actually have beta on the right, not alpha on the left. Um, and you know they're, 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 they're stimulating to try and activate with the assumption that it's a left frontal alpha. The iSpotD study that was over 3,000 patients internationally said it's not all left frontal alpha this you know the you can't think of depression as left frontal alpha there's frontal balance uh, there's other things too um and it's not all left frontal uh, some of it is frontal midline uh, as as seen in the thalamocortical dysrhythmia literature so uh, re- reward deficiency issues at the frontal midline so you know looking ends up telling you where to point that fancy magnet and whether to activate or inactivate. Um, uh, they, they treat OCD by activating the anterior cingulate with a double cone coil, big, two big circles bent in the middle and uh, it hits you in the anterior cingulate and activates it. If they looked, they would identify whether you had alpha or theta, in which case activating is fine. If you have beta, Activating is going to blow this person up psychiatrically. I mean, this is not going to be a good outcome. Uh, you're, you're, you're pushing it exactly in the wrong direction. They don't look, they treat based on the OCD symptom. And again, symptoms should get you testing 
which tells you how to treat, not assuming the, uh, the DSM does not predict appropriate therapeutic outcomes. If it did, the story would be enough. Uh, as it is, we know it's it doesn't work that way. So, um, uh, the, when they, when they they walked they walked away from the DSM because it just doesn't work. It's not a it, it's like a dictionary. You get the same DSM every time based on the behavior. You get the same diagnosis, but it doesn't predict outcomes for therapy. It doesn't tell you which drug is going to work. It doesn't tell you what treatment is going to work. Uh, you, you need to do testing. And testing for the brain, you know, EEG is one major way. MEG is obviously a big way. Uh, spec scan can test the brain. Um, it, 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 you know, th there are ways to actually look at it um, uh, structurally uh, and and functionally. So, um, if, my, if my, you, Jay, my simple take is the waves are moving all over. It's a constant thing in different areas. It's uh, to get a snapshot of it, it's not. It's got to be a snapshot over time, right? To see the different changes. Yeah. And do you do you think it's just too hard to understand? Is it hubris that well, we're just going to give a blunt instrument instrument a pill to just cover all the problems and knock somebody out? Why is the EKG so popular for a heart and the EEG is not so popular for the brain? That's what I don't get. Well, the EKG can predict imminent death. <laughs> so it catches people's attention a little bit more than the slow degradation that you can predict based on the EEG. Uh, EEG actually is very good at predicting outcome, mild cognitive impairment. Gee, Doc, uh, my memory is getting a little fritzy. Uh, do, do I have dementia or is this just normal? I'm getting old. Why am I here, Doc? You know, uh, it, it, uh, and, and the EG can predict two years from now, you know, likelihood whether you're going to be still at home with a little help, but uh, or whether you need to be, you know, hospitalized. I'll give you an analogy. What about AFib? Okay, EKG yeah. picks up AFib. You're not. It's not going to kill you right away, but eventually you get a stroke, right? Uh, and it may kill you right away too with a with a stroke. <laughs> I mean, the um, if your heart's not pumping efficiently, the blood sits inside of it, and then it can clot. And once you've got clots forming in your heart, you blow them out. Now, at that point, they've got the aortic arch could go out your arm. That's not a stroke. Could go up the left side. It might go outside your skull. It might go inside your skull. If it goes inside your skull, you've got a stroke. Uh, and, and, and that's that's got a single line going up to the left side. The right side coming off the aortic arch has a branch going out to the arm off of that ascending artery. So you, you have a if it goes up the right side, you have a half a chance of it going out the arm and then some chance of being extracranial, intracranial. So uh, you have a, actually a, a higher likelihood of strokes on the left hemisphere than the right hemisphere. Um, but uh, it, that's that's stats. You know, um, you, you get you get it in the hemisphere that you get it in. And um, um, and the likelihood is if you have AFib. Uh, you're, it, it's an eventuality. You're going to end up having uh, clots and and throwing them. Uh, if they're big enough, it's a major stroke. If they're smaller, uh, you you may have 
experiences of TIAs uh, yeah. because it's a very very small vessel and it's not a uh, not a major stroke. Um, but um, by that time, you're having a, a vascular dementia starting to build up. Uh, all, I'm just all trying the small to think, arteries. think of a, a simple way to explain this to somebody. It's if EKG, if you see the AFib, you say, you know what? One day you're going to have a stroke. You better take blood thinners right now. Okay, EEG, you have slow front, right? You have an issue there. You can, you better do word games, whatever it is, neurofeedback, something yeah. to, you know. When you see something not working right in the brain, there's two ways to control the neuron that you're trying to control. Ligand-gated ion channels, which work with meds, and voltage-gated ion channels that work well with neuromodulatory techniques. So you've got kind of one or the other, or sometimes both. Uh, Vince Monastra did a nice study uh, in, a, in a school system and uh, uh, they, they looked for kids that had high theta-beta ratios at CZ. And they, that's, that's at that point in the early 90s um, uh, and late, late 1999, early 2000, that was considered a diagnostic of uh, ADD. And all of those kids got methylphenidate, which is the med that matches up well with the high theta-beta ratio. Half of the ones who got the methylphenidate also got neurofeedback. Six months later, everybody got their meds pulled. The ones who had neurofeedback stayed okay. The others reverted to their, their ADD ways. So uh, that it, you can work with meds in the short run, but in the long run, neurofeedback gives you a skill set as opposed to an effect. And if you take the meds away, you've lost the ligand-gated ion channel control. You don't have the effect anymore. If you've learned to control the voltage-gated ion channel yourself, um, you've got a skill set. You, you as long as you want, you've got it. In, in fact, they've shown that from intake to outtake in neurofeedback, uh, that at the end level, how good you are at the control uh, is is measured so you've gotten better control by the time you're discharged as no longer being a patient in the office. If they do six month or one year follow up, you've actually gotten better at it. And you know the 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 skill set consolidates. So all you have to do is use it. Um, and try it. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, then go to the pills. It's it's surprising how much control can be provided. Again, uh, the demonstrations that we've done uh, with intractable epileptics that were basically told they had to have brain surgery and, and you know three meds they couldn't control them, hundreds of seizures a day sometimes. So that you know you you stop the seizures and the meds, and at that point you've got clinical success with training the voltage gated ion channels so it you know it's 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 entirely possible to control the brain uh it, it, who else is in control of your brain are there strings going up is there a master puppeteer pulling your 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 strings for your brain 
you know, you you may have some triggers there built in from earlier experience that can, you know, others can poke that button and get a response. Uh, but uh, really, it, it, you're, you're your master puppeteer of your own brain. And uh, if you learn how to control it better, you get a better outcome. And the higher the level of control you want, the more likely it is that you're going to need to have tune-ups, fine-tuning. And neurofeedback is that fine-tuning tune-up. Um, go to Daytona 500 and see how often they tune those cars up. You know, so... Well, Jay Gunkelman, the man who has read well over half a million brain scans from his Susan City office. I'm in the NeuroNoodle East office temporarily in uh, Naples, Florida. Please enjoy the fine bathroom. It reminds me of your neck of the woods with the boats going by and the little channel and and all that. So that that's a good Good mental health staring at the palm trees, Jay. <laughs> well, we've got palm trees here too, you know. So, <laughs> so um, well, we got we got humidity. <laughs> there you go. Well, th this year uh, Sassoon Summit's going to be October 9th for the arrival, uh, okay. 10th, 11th, and 12th for the meeting, and the 12th is the birthday party, my 75th this year. So. Uh, we, we we plan on a on a fun fun time, you, you know. It's kind of a three day rolling party yeah. for um, uh, uh, for me here locally, and um, it, and we, we usually bring in some interesting uh, uh, speakers. So we'll uh, we'll we'll get a, a save the date announcement out sometime over the next. Oh, we few gave weeks. everybody an eight. It's always in October. It's always Jay's birthday. Okay. Book your yeah. rooms now. Let's go, baby. <laughs> and then, hey, tell the Yacht Club, stock up on the Miller Lights, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the Yacht Club on uh, uh, all members on, uh, uh, on March 1st, the Commodore is giving uh, the first drink is on him. So all the members are invited to stop over for a drink. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Jack, can't wait, my friend. Oh, have you a have great a great day. weekend, buddy. Bye-bye. Dr. Marie, see you next week. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Mark your calendars for Friday, April 26, 2024, as Bradley University hosts the 8th Annual Super Brain Summit, presented by the Center for Collaborative Brain Research. This year's topic, Rhythms of Regulation, Polyvagal Perspectives, promises an insightful exploration to polyvagal theory with Deb Dana, LCSW, leading the discussions as a featured speaker. Dana is a celebrated author and clinician, brings her extensive knowledge and practical experience to the forefront. Front. The event will be held at the Hayden Clark Alumni Center's Peplo Pavilion, available both live and online, ensuring accessible participation for all interested. For those looking to register or seeking more information, please contact Gwen at ghowarter at bradley.edu or by phone at 309-677-3900. Further inquiries about the program can be directed to Dr. Lloyd Russell Chapin at lar at bradley.edu. Don't miss this enriching opportunity to engage with the latest advancements in brain research and polyvagal practices.